I'm Laura Max Rose, mother of two, and you're listening to Look Ma No Hands, my candid dispatches from the front lines of motherhood. I ask the real, tough, honest questions on motherhood-related topics that we're all wanting to know more about, in hopes it will make everyone's journey fulfilling, easier, and more joyful. If you're not a mom, welcome. I want you to know how happy I am that you're listening and that these topics can be applied to any season of life. I'm grateful you're along for the ride. Welcome back to Look Ma No Hands. I am your host, Laura Max Rose, and I am joined today by the author of two books, The Sober Diaries and The Authenticity Project. Most recently, Claire Pooley, welcome to Look Ma No Hands. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here all the, all the way from London in the UK. All the way from London. You're actually my second interview in the UK today. So I've had a very early morning and I'm absolutely loving it. This might be my new way of doing things. Um, but I, I came across your book, The Sober Diaries on Amazon. And I have, I've, I've devoured this book probably faster than anything I've ever read. My husband says he's never seen me read something so fast. And I actually read several passages out loud to him. The back of the book kind of says it all. Um, is it possible to live without alcohol in a world where you're more likely to be offered a glass of wine at a play date than a cup of tea? You're about to find out. The thing I love the most about this book, Claire, is this is a memoir of your decision to stop drinking five years ago. So you've been sober for five years. You're a mother of three. And um, you account what that was like um, to have gone from drinking a bottle and a half of wine or more per day. You kind of had this wake up moment um, where you woke up from your birthday party after having, you had the worst hangover as you describe it. And you had a rule about um, not drinking before noon. And as long as you didn't break that rule, that meant you didn't have a problem, which is something that I hear a lot of people talking about. Like, as long as these rules are in place, I think a lot of us are probably familiar with that thinking. I know I've certainly had it as a mom, like as long as I don't exceed this number of drinks per day, I'm okay. Um, And your hangover was so bad, you just couldn't help yourself. So you grabbed the nearest mug and poured yourself a glass of red wine, like at 1030 in the morning or before noon. And uh, you had a look at the mug and it said world's best mom. And that was your moment of, okay, I need to turn things around. So I, uh, I had, I discovered your book after really for several years, um, heavily considering, if you will, my relationship with alcohol. And I find this so interesting because while I wasn't drinking a bottle and a half of wine a day, I was having anywhere between probably one and three glasses of wine on most days. And it was a very ingrained part of my routine in a way that I wasn't comfortable with. And I couldn't really find anybody to validate that for me. I would bring it up with friends and professionals and just the number of drinks I was having wasn't something to raise a red flag. After my daughter Violet was born, I had a tremendous amount of postpartum anxiety. So we've all heard of postpartum depression. I had that too. But my postpartum anxiety was taking over my life. I couldn't go check on her in the middle of the night in her crib because I was afraid I would find her not breathing. I was completely paralyzed. Um, And my anxiety started getting worse and worse. I um, would have it hit me and I'd be driving my car at four o'clock in the afternoon and um, would just be overwhelmed by this feeling of anxiety. So I actually ended up going to see a psychiatrist to discuss going on antidepressant or an anxiety medication. And I even brought up with her the amount that I was drinking. I said, you know, I have this feeling that the amount of alcohol I'm having or having any alcohol at all might be contributing to my anxiety and my depression. 
Um, I told her how much I was drinking and this this hunch that I had was completely dismissed because I was within the parameters of what is acceptable, what's an acceptable amount to drink. So that combined with everyone from my you know, family members, friends, and my pediatrician even saying once, like, I hope you go home and have a glass of wine after this. When I brought my daughter in for a checkup, she had a fever and my oldest was yelling. Everyone around me was recommending wine as a way to anesthetize the difficulty and the challenges of motherhood. And that small voice that I had inside of me saying, this might really be hurting you a lot more than it's helping you, um, was struggling to get any air. So of course, coronavirus happens. And I had my final realization that if I were to be quarantined inside of my house with my two kids um, and not be able to go anywhere and not have any real rules or structure and alcohol was on the table for me as an option, I would abuse the privilege. I knew that. I knew that about myself. I knew that I would start drinking more than I wanted to drink way more outside of whatever would be considered acceptable socially or not socially, um, that I would be using it as an aid. And I know that when I, especially around my kids, um, having any amount of alcohol makes me much edgier. Um, I didn't want to live with the guilt of that. I didn't want to live with that added struggle. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to try this. I'm going to try to cut out alcohol and see what happens. Um, what do you know? I stumble across your book, The Sober Diaries. I've laughed. I've cried. Um, it's been incredible. And you talk so much about so much that I experienced um, in my decision to stop drinking. You talk about the wine witch, which you're, we're going to get into. Um, <laughs> Wine, which is always coming and telling you how you deserve that glass, that you had a really hard day. And I never had a word for that. I just genuinely felt like I deserved a glass and I would have one. And then I would have a really terrible day the next day. And you talk about all these different stages of sobriety in which things get easier and things get harder, how you slept better than you ever have in your life, and all of the revelations that you have come across as since becoming um, sober mummy, as you are labeled online. And, um, I'm just so excited to have you on to talk about your journey. So first of all, thank you for going on it. And thank you for all of your um, strength and honesty that you share with us in this book. And let's just dive right in and start with the early days. Um, you make a decision to get sober. For those who haven't read your book, what was the beginning like for you? And um, what was it really like to have that moment, seeing that red wine in the mug and looking around at your family and saying, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. Oh, you know what? Um, you know, I, I thought at that point that my life as I knew it was pretty much over. You know, I thought, um, I thought that life without alcohol uh, would be pretty dull and boring and all the, you know, all the good times that I'd been, I'd had in the past with, with alcohol were part of my my distant future, uh, sorry, distant past, and you know, I um, I, I honestly believe that uh, that that life would never be the same again. But I I thought this is something I've got to do. I have to do it for my family. It's time to grow up. It's time to to you know face the reality that that I'm just not being a good mother, and this is really affecting my physical health. It's affecting my mental health. Um, you know, it was affecting my life in so many different ways. But I really wasn't looking forward to it at all. And 
you know, I was, the main thing I remember feeling is I felt very alone. I felt that nobody else was struggling the same way that I was. Um, you know, my social media feed was constantly filled with with um, memes about mummy's little helper and wine o'clock and everybody seemed to be drinking without having, without it causing them any problems. And um, and I also felt really ashamed um, because I felt this was somehow my fault. Um, and as a result, I didn't really feel like I could talk to anyone. I didn't feel like I could confess what I was going through to my friends or family. I was too ashamed and too scared to call AA or anybody like that. And, you know, so what I did was I decided to set up a blog um, and, you know, almost like, like an online diary. I thought if I just write down how I feel every day, um, that will help keep me on track. So I started a blog called Mummy Was a Secret Drinker. And and that was where the writing started. Well, I love you. You quote a lot. You have a lot of passages from Mummy Was a Secret Drinker in your book and you talk a lot about it. And it was essentially, you know, you talked about not going to AA meetings, but that that these blog entries were like your meetings because you had feedback. Finally, people who knew your story, you would go out and you would want to drink. Um, you could think about all the people reading your blog and that you felt accountable to them and that they really supported you um, through what you were going through. So in those early days, um, you talk a lot about how it wasn't something that you were looking forward to. It didn't seem happy or fun or exciting. Um, you kind of felt boring. Um, and there was always this voice in your head that was telling you, particularly around whatever wine o'clock would be considered that you should grab a glass of wine. How did you figure out that that was just part of getting sober, that that wasn't necessarily a voice to be listened to? Well, you know, I, I did so much research in those early days. I uh, I read everything I could get my hands on. So I, you know, I spent a lot of time on Google. Um, I bought a whole load of books. I read loads of memoirs. And I realized that the voice in my head that had become my constant companion for years, you know, the voice that constantly said, uh, are you going to drink tonight? How much are you going to drink tonight? Um, you know, the... Uh, sort of you, know, you deserve another glass all all of that sort of chatter that I was I was so used to um I realized was all part of uh an addiction and anyone who's had an addiction to anything uh will know that sort of addict voice um and it's just the same if you're addicted to sugar or or gambling or whatever it might be and I, I realized that, you know, from uh, I think the book I read that talked about it most vividly was Alan Carr. And I'd read his book on quitting smoking years before when I'd given up smoking. And uh, and he talked about the, the addict voice there. Um, and he talks about how if you visualize that voice as something separate from you, then it helps you to deal with it. Because if if you if you think that that voice is is you, you're arguing with yourself. And that's a really hard thing to do, to constantly battle against your own thoughts. Whereas if you visualize it as, as I termed my voice, the wine witch, then I knew I was fighting an enemy. I wasn't fighting myself. And that is a fundamental mind shift that actually really, really helps because you realize you're not going completely crazy. Um, you realize that this this voice will go away. This The wine witch will 
die if you um, deprive her of what she wants, which is alcohol. And the longer you go without giving the wine witch a drink, the weaker she gets and eventually she disappears. And I have to say that people quite often ask me what the best thing about not drinking is. And, you know, the very there are many, many miraculous things about not drinking, which I'm sure we'll come on to. But but one of the one of the very best things is peace. You know, I no longer have have that voice in my head. I no longer have to worry about when I'm going to drink, how much I'm going to drink, if I'm going to drink, what the rules around drink are. That is all gone. And that leaves you with so much time and space to do so many other things. And, you know, I'm still unbelievably grateful for that every day. Well, you wrote a book and you've written, since written another one. You've given a TED Talk. I found that for me, the, <clears throat> for me, the wine witch was validated by social media. As a mom, you have other friends who are moms. And like, I have <clears throat> several people that I follow who were just posting whatever, like they were having a glass of wine every day. And I think, you know, that might work for them. I knew in my heart that it didn't work for me. But seeing that other people were doing it, it was just this way of saying, you know what, you deserve it, you can do it too. And completely removing myself from the fact that I knew inherently that this was something that was taking away for me. It was particularly taking away from my creativity. I had a blog several years ago and I, I started a podcast in, I guess, essentially in lieu of a blog about a year ago. And I had actually started telling myself that I just couldn't write anymore, that I wasn't really a good writer, that I had never really been a good writer. It was just a few bursts of creativity that I wasn't going to have back again. And being a writer was like a huge part of my identity. So it's kind of amazing that I was able to get to a place where I just thought I wasn't capable of it anymore. And after about, it was longer than I thought it would be. It was more like maybe a month or a month and a half of not drinking. Um, the writing just started pouring out of me again. Like there was just this person inside of me that was just waiting to come out. And it was so validating that I had known really the whole time that this was what alcohol was doing to me, but it was so hard to get beyond the messages that I was seeing about the role that wine plays in motherhood, um, specifically, and just like taking the edge off. So your quote on the back of the book, which I love talking about, you know, is it possible to be on a play date, at, at, like be sober in a world where you're more likely to be offered wine at a play date than a cup of tea. What was it like going out into the world after making this decision and um, becoming sober essentially and being around people who were used to you drinking all the time? How, I, I mean, I, I imagine it was uncomfortable for you to suddenly just say, oh, hey, I'm having a seltzer. <laughs> yeah, it's, it really was because, you know, uh, things have changed actually in the last five years. And there is now much, much more acceptance that, um, you know, not drinking is is a valid life choice. And actually, you know, there's a lot, a lot of people that are now seeing it as a really positive life choice. But five years ago, that in certainly in the UK, that really wasn't the case. So, you know, if you gave up smoking, you'd go to a party and say, hey, I quit smoking. And everyone would go, yay, well done you. You know, mm -hmm. um, Whereas you go to a party and you say, oh, I quit drinking. And everyone looks at you as if you're slightly crazy and then walks away. You know? Right. So, it's like crazy thing that you've decided to abstain from alcohol. Crazy. So, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and then, you know, and then they want to know why and they make all sorts of assumptions about you and they assume you were pouring vodka on your cornflakes in the morning. And, um, you know, and it's, it leads to some very difficult conversations that you may not be ready to have. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think other people 
can make it really, really hard initially. And and it's great to see that gradually changing. Um, so, yeah, so that's fab. But, um, you know, it's funny, isn't it? Because when I first had children, so my eldest child is 16 now, and when she was first born, that was still the era of, um, you know, where we were all reading endless mothering books about, you know, how to be the perfect parent. And it was all about, you know, being having your children in a set routine and baking perfect cupcakes and um you know and and having a, a beautiful home and all of those things and then there was a big backlash against this and the, it was the you know with the internet came the rise of the mummy blogger and um and there were a whole load of mothers out there going you know no we're not having this you know life is hard enough without trying to be perfect and you know uh, let's just hold our hands up and say you know we are all just muddling along as best we can and that was brilliant but what came with that was was wine wine o'clock you know it was like we are doing our best and at the end of the day we deserve a glass of wine and you know I totally bought into that <laughs> oh, why not it's a wonderful idea to buy into when you think about it like finally I can indulge in this thing that's like been kind of like not even taboo, but like to drink by yourself was just drinking alone has become cool in like the last decade. But 16 years ago, it wasn't as I recall. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a stigma, um, you know, back in the day, but it became uh, me time. You know, it was my way of segueing from uh, a day which had been all about the kids to an evening, which was about me and my husband. And, um, you know, and wine was my way of shifting that mood. And, uh, you know, and that's, I think, the way a lot of women drink. And, you know, and, and I, I hate to, I, I really hate to, to sort of, uh, to preach to anyone, because if you, you know, if you can keep that, if you can keep that drinking in control, then, you know, then that's absolutely fine. But, you know, it, alcohol is addictive, and it gradually creeps up on you. And, you know, I hardly realized it happening. And I was I was never drunk, you know, but I could, I, my tolerance gradually increased to the point where I could drink a bottle of wine without even really noticing anything, which is... I love yeah, right? It just like kind of doesn't even hit you the same way. And yeah. I love say that because um when i decided to stop drinking um before the quarantine happened i was later like reminiscing and saying to my husband you know i really wasn't drinking that much it was just this small amount that i was having was really affecting me and he was like laura you were regularly getting lunch with a friend and having one or two glasses of wine and then coming home and having somewhere between one and three and it was like i had completely erased that I had any wine at lunch like that wine didn't count so for yeah. <laughs> a part of my and like it does it creeps up on you and like now I look back on that and I'm like whoa like that was a lot but like you don't realize that it's happening and you don't realize that it's turning into this way to cope with your life and um, you also talk a lot about sleep which I love because I'm just having this huge awakening in my own life sleep is I've always been the best sleeper and Ever since my daughter Violet was born, I honestly thought that there was something wrong with me, that I just stopped being a good sleeper. I would try melatonin, and then I found out it's really bad for your hormones in a lot of cases if you're a female to take melatonin. And so trying to figure out my sleep and why I can't fall asleep properly. And alcohol just has this catastrophic effect on our sleep. And you talk a lot about what it feels like to get good sleep again. So tell us mm. more about that. 
Yeah, and this is one of the main effects I found of of the amount that I was drinking. I would go to sleep really easily. In fact, I would often, I would normally go to sleep accidentally. So I would be watching a movie with my husband and, you know, and uh, while drinking another glass of wine and um, I would fall asleep before the end of the movie. I can't tell you how many movies I missed the ends of over the years. So I'd fall asleep on the sofa and then I'd wake up thinking, oh God, I missed the end of the movie again and go to bed and fall asleep again. And um, and I would wake up then at about 3 a.m. And 3 a.m. is is the classic time to wake up if you are, are drinking too much, because mm-hmm. that's it's the effect of your body metabolizing the alcohol that you've drunk creates adrenaline, which then wakes you up. So you wake up at about 3 a.m. and you feel dehydrated and hot and um uh, toxic and um, what I used to do was toss and turn and and at that point that's when all the you know all those worries that you tried to dampen with with the alcohol come back you know times times 10 don't they you know you end up sort of you know berating yourself about all the things that you should have done that you didn't or you did do, do that you shouldn't have done and you know everything seems so much worse at 3 a.m. So I would toss and turn between 3 a.m. and about 6 a.m. And then I would finally fall asleep about half an hour before my alarm went off to get me up in the morning. And and I would feel, you know, under par for, for at least half of the next day. And, you know, I did that pretty much every single night for probably a decade. And... Um, I didn't, it took me a long time to realize that it was the alcohol that was causing that problem. And when often when you quit drinking, it takes a little bit of adjustment. Sometimes um, it can be difficult to get to sleep for the first two or three weeks because you're used to alcohol sort of giving you that soporific effect that sort of sends you off to sleep at the beginning of the night. But once, you know, once the initial adjustment period was over, you know, I slept like a baby and I still do. And you know, I I wake up every morning and bounce out of bed. And I, I never thought that would happen to me again. And it really is, mornings are still miraculous for me. It's, uh, it's, it's the most fantastic feeling waking up in the morning, feeling properly refreshed. Well, it's amazing because you really do get to this place where you think that that's just like a thing of the past and that somehow alcohol mm. has nothing to do with that. Like, I really just thought, okay, I'm older now, so I'll never sleep well again. Yeah, I I thought maybe it was to do with having kids. I thought maybe it's because your subconscious is always alert. And, you know, I went through all sorts of theories about what caused not being able to sleep with, (laughs) because I didn't want to believe that, uh, that it was, you know, there was yet another reason I should quit drinking. No, I know. I like, I couldn't even, I don't know. I couldn't make the connection. I just thought it had gone on for so long, the poor sleeping that I just, because if you, the other thing that kind of reinforces that is even if you're not drinking every day, if you drink somewhat regularly and you skip a few days, those next few nights of sleep are not going to be good nights of sleep. You don't just stop and then get a great night's sleep the next time, night. It takes a while for that to set in. Um, the yeah, author you know, of there, there's something I read, um, you know, when I first quit, but uh, really struck me because, you know, I, I quite, you know, I went through whole whole periods of my life where I'd set rules about when I could drink and how much I could drink to try and keep it under control. You know, for, for years before I quit, I was trying to drink more moderately. And, you know, so often I would only drink for three or four nights of the week. And, you know, and I, what, what I, I realized when I, uh, I read this book is that um, you, 
it takes you two or three days for your body to sort of get rid of the alcohol that you've just drunk. Um, and those days are sort of a period of, of sort of withdrawal. So you don't feel brilliant. And then you drink again. So if you're even if you're only drinking three or four nights a week, there's probably not one single night of that week where you are completely without the effects of alcohol. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think so many, like, so many people don't realize that they think, okay, I've stopped. Now I should be okay. I'm not. So I'm just going to keep drinking because that wasn't causing my problem. You also talk about how as you got further into your sobriety, there was like a pink cloud for you. Everything was wonderful. And then several, it was a hundred, was it 180 days in you experienced pause post alcohol withdrawal syndrome, which you had no idea existed either. Um, where, you know, you weren't feeling quite as excited about life and, and thought that there was something wrong. And, and through all your research, you were able to establish that this is just something that happens and it doesn't, it has a start and an end point. Um, I think so much of that information that you make available in your book is so wonderful because, um, a lot of us could just be kind of at home, like, okay, I'm going to give up drinking and see what happens. And it does feel lonely. Um, especially like in a world where it's very much the norm to drink. Um, on a regular basis. Um, so you talk about that and you talk about getting really weepy. Um, the month where I do a lot of weeping is April. Um, and you were like a faucet. I can kind of relate to that. (laughs) Um, it's like, it's all coming out, right? Like all of the stuff that didn't get to come out before. Yeah. No, we British are not very good at showing emotions. Um, and I realize now how therapeutic crying is. And I've been doing a lot of it with lockdown recently as well. And, you know, I mean, I I went through years of, you know, if I felt weepy, I would have a drink. I wouldn't weep. And now if I feel weepy, I weep. (laughs) And, you know, and and actually it's it's, it's like, it's, it's like letting the, the pressure out of a pressure cooker you know you sort of you build up all this pressure and having a good cry is nature's way of releasing that tension so you know so if 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 you're if you're listening to this feeling a bit sort of you know a bit about like go and have a good weep it's it's the best way of of sort of resetting well you also talk about going through that right you're talking about going through that in the quarantine it's a very emotional time and I know that like my emotions have been magnified by the fact that we are in a quarantine and in such uncertain times. And I asked you before we started recording, have your book sales gone up? Because I can imagine, you know, we've had two months of everyone at home drinking to just get through this. And now is about the time where people are like, you know what, this isn't going to be a sustainable way for me to get through things. I can imagine there's a spike in your book sales. And you said, yeah, like, that's exactly what's happening right now. Um, This is kind of bringing us to our own attention in that way. Yeah. And, you know, I am so grateful that I don't drink now, because if I was still drinking at this point, um, I would have emptied the cupboard of all the essentials like pasta and toilet roll, and I would have filled it with wine. (laughs) And just, just the extra, you know, the extra stress of having to make sure you have enough alcohol in the house and dealing with hangovers when you're trying to homeschool and, you know, oh, yeah. All of those things are sort of, you know, it's uh, magnified. And, you know, I think the problem with with drinking in lockdown is that you end up drinking for the wrong reasons. And, you know, if you if you are drinking for, you know, what I would describe as social lubrication, you know, sort of to Mm -hmm. to relax at a party, then. You know, that's one thing. And you can probably keep that under control because you don't go to parties all the time. But 
if you are drinking um, as a form of self-medication, so to deal with stress or anxiety or depression, um, then that can become a real problem because alcohol actually makes all of those things worse. It exacerbates depression. It exacerbates uh, um, anxiety. Um, and, you know, and it causes more stress in your life. So what you end up doing is, is you drink to solve a problem that the alcohol then makes worse. And then you drink again, trying to make it better. And you end up in this terrible negative cycle that, uh, you know, the way you're, everything gets worse and worse and worse. Um, and it takes a very, so few people realize that uh, the link between anxiety, depression and alcohol that, um, you know, it's very easy to, to think that the alcohol is making things better when actually it's making them worse. Yeah, I mean, we know so little about, I mean, it's not that we don't know a lot about it, but we do not discuss um, openly how much alcohol does really affect anxiety and depression. And I think particularly in the postpartum period, I mean, I look back, my youngest is 15 months old, and I'm just looking back on, you know, she was born and I was really doing quite well. And in contrast, especially to after my first was born, I was an absolute mess. Um, so the second time around, I was I was doing great. And I was drinking somewhat regularly, but not like in a way that I felt like was affecting me negatively. Things were things were good. And then the sort of darkness sort of started to set in. I'm not really not sure what happened first, the chicken or the egg. But um, I did start feeling like whenever I had that glass of wine at night, everything was okay. And um, what I didn't see was that it was actually exacerbating so much of what was making me feel depressed. And we don't really talk about how much um, alcohol can cause those types of feelings, that anxiety and depression. And I can say now um, on where from where I'm standing that I don't have a lot of the anxiety that I used to have. Um, I still have some of it, but I can feel it really dissipating. Mm. And um, there was this, you talk about this like joie de vivre, like this joy of being alive. Um, I can honestly tell you, like I've had that my whole life. And right after my second daughter was born, I genuinely arrived at a place where I believed I'm probably just never going to have that again. And that's okay. And I was going through my life thinking, this is just how it is. And I've I've just, I don't need things to be any better. And I was just very like subconsciously resigned to not really feeling very excited about the little things anymore and not necessarily feeling a general sense of gratitude for my life. I knew intellectually that I have an incredible life and I knew intellectually that I had so much to feel grateful for, but my own like inner sense of joy had been so depreciated. And I just thought, okay, this is what happens to people. And I have had feelings of joy and gratitude over the last couple of months that I honestly thought were things I would never feel again. Oh, that's and so I think great. It's amazing. And I think honestly, we are so ingrained with this idea that like alcohol is such a part of our everyday life, particularly as moms that I know I'm not the only one um, and I, who, who went to that place and who believed that I couldn't write anymore or believed all these things about myself that weren't, yeah, weren't true. I, I was, I was just the same. And again, it happens so gradually that you don't notice it. And looking back, the way I see it now is that, um, what alcohol did for me is gradually it just leached the color, um, away from, from my life. Everything became more and more monochrome. Um, and um uh and and then you know when i stopped drinking that color gradually came back 
and that was just so miraculous it was it was just uh i never like you i i never expected to feel that sort of sense of joy that i had done when you know i was a child and a, and a young adult i thought uh, i thought that it was all part of growing up and it's not you know it's, it's not it's really not you also talk about weight loss and your glowing skin, which I just think is hilarious. You talk about how in the beginning of becoming, <laughs> when you first became sober, like you had a wine. <laughs> yes, you were like, I had a wine belly and it wasn't going to, what was it, a wine baby or wine belly? I can't remember. But um, you like were just shocked when you stepped on the scale quickly after deciding to get sober, sober and you weren't any, you weren't any lighter and you realized you were kind of like eating your weight in cake. So that might be why. And I love that because I definitely experienced, I mean, we have this donut shop by our house and I, I love donuts, but I've never felt the need for one at three o'clock in the afternoon. And I mean, it was becoming part of my daily routine at three o'clock in the afternoon to go get this donut. And I saw myself expanding a little bit and, um, you know, it went away. Like it was something that kind of got me through those first, like couple weeks or whatever, but I could definitely, you talk about cross addictions, how there is a lot of um, room for people to kind of jump from one thing <laughs> to yeah, another. I mean, uh, the, there's a, uh, when you drink it, it uh, produces um, a chemical in your brain called dopamine, which is the happy drug. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and our brains love dopamine. And, um, you know, if you are, if you are what you know, is described as an addictive personality, so, so you're the sort of person who, um, you know, who is, who gets, a, uh, picks up addictions very easily is probably because you're very sensitive to dopamine. Um, and, um, and sugar um, gives you the same dopamine hit that alcohol does. So it really is very easy to go from, from alcohol to cake. <laughs> and so right. many people have, have messaged me over the, over the, the, the years sort of, so, you know, talk, talking about exactly that. And the truth is it doesn't really matter to start off with, you know, I think if cake helps and I'm, yeah. you know, I'm eating cake again right now to, to, as in my, as my way of coping Amen. with, with COVID-19, because, you know, it, it, does a lot it to does with. you know it is it is a prop but uh but yeah you you can deal with that one that one later on so right yeah you know. yeah so you talk about your sober hair you get great hair and bot what looks like botox skin um i can i can relate because i like the best skincare product i've ever tried was just being hydrated like oh my god i had no idea how dehydrated i was before um and it's it really does do like wonders for your skin. So finally you get through almost a year of sobriety and things are going really well for you. And you find out that you have breast cancer, um, which was thankfully, um, you know, you were able to, you were able to actually get through it without having any chemotherapy. Um, but you describe what it would be like to go through that experience if you were in fact still drinking and what it would have looked like. And what was the most visceral part of reading about that for me which is the thing that I, I mean, I identified with the most going into this quarantine was you thought about how you would have treated your children when you told them that you had breast cancer. Yeah. Um, you know, I am still grateful every single day and I have to try not to get tearful when I talk about this, but I'm still grateful every single day that I had enough months of sobriety under my belt before that happened because, um, you know, I, as it was, I was able to get through the treatment for breast cancer. I had a lumpectomy. I had radiotherapy. 
as you say, I was, I was, it was caught relatively early, so, so um, I didn't have to have chemotherapy, which was a great relief. Um, and um, you know, if I had, if I had still been drinking at that time, I would have drunk to deal with the all the intense emotions of that period, and you know, the wheels really would have come off the bus. So, you know, and the problem with drinking is it makes you more selfish you know I would have just thought about myself and what I was going through I wouldn't have thought enough about how my children were reacting to all of this so I'm certain I would have cried in front of my children I probably would have fallen apart and you know and they it was really important for them that uh, you know they saw me being strong because if I fell apart they would fall apart too um and also just you know if I'd still been drinking I'm not sure I would have gone straight to the doctor when I found the the lump in the first place I think I probably would have been able to put it to the back of my mind for at least a few weeks because every time I, I thought about it I'd have a quick drink to sort of take the edge off the fear and I would have convinced myself it was just a cyst and it was a wasn't a big deal and as it was I went straight to the doctor and that's what you know that's that's what stopped me having to have chemotherapy and that's possibly the reason I'm still here now so you know I mean I, I think not drinking it may have saved my life it certainly made my children's lives much much easier and better and you know as I said I'm still grateful every single day that that uh, that that I I was sober then also you know, the, a lot of the tricks that I learned when I quit drinking were really helpful at that time and are helpful to me now with, with the situation we're all in now. So taking it one day at a time, um, you know, practicing gratitude, mindfulness, you know, all the little tools that I picked up when I quit drinking, um, you know, I bought back again and were really helpful. Well, you talk about how, um, you know, your children once you, um, once you had gotten through the chemo, what you didn't have chemotherapy, sorry. Once you got through breast cancer and you were officially in remission, um, I think it was your son who described you as being more mummyish. that you were, um, how has your relationship with your children? Like, have you seen a lot of changes just in the way that they are in the last five years? with you? Um, yeah, I mean, I, there were so many changes. Um, I mean, things like, you know, when I was drinking, I was, I wasn't as present whenever I, you know, so to give you an example, you know, when I was doing bedtime stories, you know, I would, um, I would rush through the final pages of a book, because it meant that I could get downstairs and, and open the fridge and pour myself a glass of wine. So, you know, I was always, I was quite often wanting to be somewhere else when I was with my kids and I would arrange uh, parties and play dates such that the kids could do one thing and the adults could do another. You know, I was often in a different place emotionally, if not physically, from where they were. And, you know, and, and that, you know, that that's really a real shame, actually, when you have so little time you know, as your with your children being that age, you know, that young to to be constantly escaping from them is a you know is a bit of a tragedy. And on top of that, you know, I was I was very in those days. I was uh, much. I had much less patience. I was much shoutier. You know, I would. Uh, you know, we the, our, the the noise level in in the house was much higher. You know, it's because you know I don't know if you find this, but if you shout at the kids, the kids end up shouting more, and and everything everybody ends up more tense and sort of more stressed. 
So, um, so that, that all changed hugely when I quit. But, you know, one of the, the things I'm really pleased about is the, um, is what I'm teaching them because, you know, our kids learn not from what we say, but from what we do, you know, they watch us and, you know, they, and they, what they, uh, they watch what we do, they watch how we react to things and they take all of that on board subconsciously. And, you know, I was teaching my kids that it is perfectly normal for an adult to deal with every situation with a glass of wine. Um, and it was perfectly normal to drink every day. It was perfectly normal to drink alone, you know, all of those things. And, you know, and that's not a good message for them. And I love the fact that now, you know, I'm showing them a role model who gets through all the ups and downs of life without a prop. Um, and I think that's a great thing to be able to teach them. You know, my husband still drinks. He drinks, but he drinks moderately and sensibly. And so he's showing them a role model of how to drink alcohol in a, you know, in a in an acceptable way. And I'm showing them that you don't have to drink it at all. Um, and oh. life is still great. In fact, better, much better. I love that. And I love that you're talking about, you know, being a model for them with the way that you handle things that they need to see you using these tools. Um, and then they can also see your husband, um, you know, that there's all different ways to, to be and to live your life. And like, that's what normal drinking can look like. And you also, I mean, I think so many of us as moms, like we could maybe realize we're doing something much differently than we want to be. And then there's all this shame, like, oh my gosh, what have I done? But really, like when we make a change in our lives, we show ourselves grace and forgiveness and we teach our children to do the same. It's one of the most beautiful things we can do for them is to say, you know what, everyone in life sometimes has to start over or has to do something differently. And this is what that looks like. And our children are going to have those experiences too. And it's one of the greatest things I think we can do to just give them a guide um, for later on. Um, yesterday, I mean, I recall alcohol making me feel much more elevated as well, which is another reason why I just decided to put it away. Um, cause I could imagine being quarantined inside of my kids makes me feel elevated. So those two things together weren't going to be, um, uh, were going to be good. So yesterday, you know, it was Memorial day and, um, both of the kids were home and our youngest daughter was, I don't know if she has a tooth coming in or something, but she's usually my quiet one. And uh, she was not quiet yesterday. And I was just so overwhelmed. I had stuff to do and uh, it wasn't getting done. And I didn't realize that I was slowly spiraling into um, in a pretty impatient, frustrated place. And um, very unfortunately, I ended up snapping at my oldest because I was, just, you know, she was the older one. She could handle it when my youngest was just screaming and screaming and screaming and, um, you know, she got really upset and I said to her, you know, I'm so sorry, Selma, I, I shouldn't have done that. That wasn't the right thing to do. And she looked at me and she said, it's okay, mom, let's just start over. <laughs> and I thought, you know, how many, Aww, how many times have I so lovely. in the entire world and how many, like if I've shown her nothing else, I have not shown her that I don't make any mistakes because I make them all the time, but I have shown her that it's okay to start over and it's okay to make them. And, um, that's so much of what I get from your book. Um, and your and your bravery. And it's just so beautiful. And when I read it, which I did, I mentioned, I just completely sped through the whole thing. I wish I could read it again. I found out that you have written recently another book called The Authenticity Project, which just arrived in the mail yesterday. So I get to read more Claire Pooley. Um, but if, I hope you enjoy yeah, it. I would love to hear about it straight from the author. And it's a fiction book. So like you went from writing a memoir to writing fiction. I would love to hear about how that happened for you and what that was like. Um, well, you know, I, 
you talked about how you used to write and um, and loved writing and alcohol stopped you writing. And, you know, I was exactly the same. I always, as a child and as a young adult, I loved writing and I just stopped for years and years and years. And the, almost immediately after I, I stopped drinking, I had this urge to write and you know, I wrote the blog as, as very much as therapy. I had, I, I had this, uh, you know, if I didn't write every day, I would feel antsy. So, you know, I wrote the blog and then I wrote the memoir. And then I thought, actually, I'm loving this. I'm loving the process of writing, but I don't want to carry on writing about my own life because, you know, my kids are getting older. And, you know, and they, they're at the age now where they're like, look, mummy, we don't want everyone reading about us the whole time, which, right. is, you know, which is absolutely fair enough. So, so, uh, so I, I decided to write fiction. And, you know, but it is very much informed by my experience. So, you know, when writing, writing the, the, the blog and, and the memoir, for, for me was um, not only did it change my life in incredible ways, but it changed the lives of of thousands and thousands of people who read it. And I, that sort of got me thinking, well, you know, we all, we all hide these shameful truths in our lives. And actually what would, you know, what miraculous things might happen if we were more honest with each other. And, and that led to the idea behind the authenticity project, uh, the novel, because, um, what happens is is it starts when when uh, an eccentric artist called Julian, who is seventy nine years old, um, gets a little green notebook and on the front he writes the authenticity project and inside he tells the tr- the real truth about his life and about how lonely he is and he leaves that notebook in a cafe and it's discovered by the cafe owner, Monica, and she reads his story and decides to track him down and try and make his life better. Um, And she also does what he suggests, which is she writes the truth about her life and leaves the book in a wine bar where it's found by someone else. And the book is passed between six completely different people, total strangers, and they all tell a truth about themselves and they all manage to find each other and change each other's lives in miraculous ways. So so it's a it's a feel good novel all about community, about hope, about you know, about the magic that happens when you're really honest. And uh yeah, I hope you enjoy it. I can't wait to read it and I am absolutely honored to speak with you today, Claire. Thank you so much for all that you do and all that you've shared and for being on my show today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed talking to you, Laura. And, um, and I wish you, so, you know, I, I have to tell you that, that, you know, being sober gets better and better and better. And, you know, for two years, you, you carry on noticing more and more and more benefits. And I'm so excited for, for what life has in store for you. So thank yay. you so much. Thank you so much. And if anyone is interested in in reading The Sober Diaries um, or The Authenticity Project, both are available on Amazon. And your website is Claire Pooley. That's C-L-A-R-E-P-O-O-L-E-Y. Is it .co.uk or .com? .com. Either will work, I think, but .com. Amazing. Wonderful. Claire, thank you again. And thank you all for listening. Um, I'm your host, Laura Max Rose. You've been listening to Look Ma, No Hands. And I look forward to joining you again next time. Take care. 
Thank you for joining me for another episode of Look Ma No Hands. I'm Laura Max Rose, and you can follow me on Instagram at Laura Max Rose to stay up to date on upcoming episodes and the behind the scenes of my life with my own two daughters. If you like this episode and are enjoying Look Ma No Hands, the best way you can help me spread the word is to leave a review on Apple Podcast. This is the single best way to help me reach a larger audience and share these conversations with everyone who needs to hear them. If you love something you just heard, you can also take a screenshot of the episode and share it on social media. There might be someone you know who needs to hear what you just heard, and that's another great way to make sure they do. Thank you for joining me every week. I'm grateful for each and every one of you. More next time. Mom, 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 mom.